0: Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania Wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA Wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three bedroom, one and a half bath, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house. to send us a message, and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day.
1: Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Tonic.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by James Yates. James is an archery nerd, mule deer fanatic, and hunting editor for Western Hunter Magazine. In part one of this two-part discussion, we discussed James' background, Obsession with finding big bucks, attention to detail with his bow setup, different arrows for different situations, and everything else regarding getting your bow dialed for the season. So, this this episode went extremely long. So, I split it up into two parts, and there's a pretty good hard stop between talking about a bunch of archery stuff and getting your bow set up and dialed before season, and then specifically hunting mule deer. So, on this one, we're going to focus on the, the bow setup side of things. I think that uh, everyone will really enjoy this episode. James has extreme attention to detail, and it shows with his archery setup and his success. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday Story of the Week, we have a story coming out of Pennsylvania from Jeffrey Kallig. Jeffrey wrote in, I was hunting a ladder stand spot that I call the Blue Barrel on a leased property in northern PA. My dad bought our camp in 1978 when I was 14 years old. My happy place. It is one of my top rut stands set in open hardwoods timber about 30 yards from the edge of an old clear cut. It was my first sit in this stand for the season. I had not seen anything until 9 a.m. Then I saw a doe come running towards me. She veered up the mountain away from me and stopped about 75 yards behind me. The small eight point chased her but lost interest and came within 10 yards of me and milled around. The small buck made a scrape and then rubbed a tree, which seemed like he did it out of frustration. I considered taking him, but I am glad I talked myself out of doing that. All of a sudden, the small buck jerked his head up and looked in the direction that they would both had come from. I thought immediately that another deer must be on the chase as well. I looked in that direction, and it took me about five seconds to see the nine-pointer coming from about 100 yards out towards me. The nine-pointer stopped and looked my way. I was not sure if he was looking at me or at the small 8-pointer still 10 yards from me. The 9-pointer veered up the mountain towards where the doe is now feeding. I had a 30-yard tree pre-range and he was going to walk right by it. I turned on my Tacticam camera. The camera works great to replay the shot in the tree and see the impact with the lighted knock if you don't see the deer go down. I had to be very careful as to not spook the small 8-pointer still only 10 yards from me. I mouth-bleeded to stop the nine-pointer at the 30-yard tree and made a great shot. He expired about 100 yards up the mountain. I think he was an older deer as his head was big but with a big body. He had a fairly common shorter-timed rack for the PA mountains. I had a heck of a time using ratchet straps to get him loaded up in the back of my side-by-side. I was a mess, but determined. It it was a magical day in the Pennsylvania mountains for me. I remember you telling a story in one of your podcasts about having the same struggle loading a buck on your truck or ATV. I laughed when I heard your stories. I can relate as I mostly hunt alone. Keep up the great educational and entertaining work. To me, there's nothing better than scouting and hunting the Big Woods PA mountain bucks. Well, thank you for sending in that story, Jeffrey. That is an absolute awesome story. And I'll have to share a clip um, in the Mountain Buck Monday post over on Instagram at East Meets West Hunt and Facebook East Meets West Outdoors to show the tactic cam footage of Jeffrey shooting this buck, which is a beautiful deer, by the way, such a perfect shot that he made on it really cool. So I'm pumped that, uh, he shared that with me and, and with all of you here. So thank you for sending that in. And I, I love continuing getting a ton of stories in right now, which is great. And, uh, just continuing to, to share these. So send them in to my email, bow at com, and love to, to share it on a future episode. In other news, the Elk film Riding Mountain Waves Part 2 just released on Sunday. So that's out now. That's both Part 1 and 2. That's the full film. And uh, I hope that you enjoyed it. I've been getting a ton of great feedback so far on it. And uh, I, I really, really hope that uh, you learn something from it and get a little bit of uh, entertainment value as well. So. I uh, um, thanks for everyone that that has watched it. And if you would, as always just, you know, give the YouTube channel subscribe, like and comment on the video and share it with your friends if uh if you felt like it was it was worthwhile. And uh the last couple things um so as I mentioned last week, I changed the logo and branding a little bit. So I have some of uh some apparel on sale over on the website, hats and shirts that were of the old logo and are the original logo i should say it'll still be used in some stuff but i'm running a sale on some of those items right now so if you want to go over and check that out and uh support the show from that side of things then feel free to do that i'm working on some new some new items um but takes a little bit of time to get that that stuff up and running but um and then, uh, right now as, as you're probably listening to this, when it comes out, I'm in Alabama. So I'm there this week for a long range shooting course, a rifle shooting course with one of my, uh, longtime best friends and, uh, Someone who's in the the, the seal teams and uh, has been a sniper for a long time, and also a hunter, learning some skills as far as shooting a rifle goes before going on the moose hunt. Here, gonna be sharing some stuff there, doing a podcast, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it should be really fun. Looking forward to it. But with that being said, I hope that you enjoy this episode with James Yates, and uh, we will talk to you next week. All right, we're live. I've got an archery nerd and elk and mule deer nut and uh, hunting editor for Western Hunter Magazine. James Yates, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bo.
1: Appreciate it. Uh, that's uh, quite the introduction. I, hopefully, I'm <laughs> half of those things, but archery nerd, yes. Hunting editor, yeah. Hopefully, we'll eventually figure out how to deer and elk hunt well, but...
0: Well, I called you a fanatic, so it, okay. you know that can go di- okay. that can go different ways. That can go different <laughs> ways, kidding. yeah. Uh, no, I was I, I figured you'd like the the intro there, but I just I guess that's kind of what comes to mind when I think of when I think of you, and uh, you know I got to meet you last weekend. We were in Utah at the Total Archery Challenge, and and it's funny because I've been had been following along with with your stuff, and you know, writing and, and Instagram and all those different things for some of the video content for quite a while now. And then, uh, um, you were talking to our mutual friend, Eric Jackson, and I was like, Oh, that's, and I was like, that's James Yates. And, you know, I just walked up and introduced myself to you and, and it was was good to get to, to talk to you and get to know you a little bit on a different level.
1: Yeah, man, it was for sure. That, uh, the, that Sitka hangout over the Weekend was fun uh, talking with you, and I was hoping to get a chance to just shoot the shit with Trevor. Can I say shit on your podcast, by the way? You can
0: say, yeah, you can say shit. That's <laughs> fine.
1: <laughs> uh, it was good to talk with uh, Eric. I actually hadn't met him in person, but we talked enough on the phone that I felt like I knew exactly who he was. And then Barlow was fun to chat with him. So, so yeah, it was nice to get in the shade. I'm a pale white dude. Shouldn't be in the sun too long. I'm just kidding. I am pale, but it was, either way, it was hot. It was like one hundred six in the valley that weekend. So,
0: oh, I know. That's what you were saying. I mean, when we were up at the Brighton Ski Resort, there it was. I mean, it was still in the nineties, I believe. I mean, it was hot. Yeah, I think but... it was
1: probably approaching ninety at eighty two hundred feet, which is whew, toasty for that elevation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, and it was just the sun beating down, so the, the Sica tent was a nice little hangout spot that you could get a little bit of shade, and actually a breeze kind of came through there too, which is surprising.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it was close enough to the base of the mountain that maybe we had some thermal action going on.
0: yeah. Yeah, that that made it nice. But how how can you say that you can't be out in the sun when you you hunt mule deer like you do? I feel like that's something where you get the sun beating on you quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I,
1: I, yeah, it it is. Yeah, no, I just uh, I I just don't get too serious and make fun of my ultra white gingerness. So if you know if you know Isaac Aylman, he'd he'd uh, he'd concur that I am very gringo, very yeah. white.
0: Yeah, Isaac. Uh, <laughs> Isaac cracked me up. Were you, were you there when he was doing the when he was on the microphone calling oh, yeah. everybody out to shoot? Did, oh, did he, he, get, did he to get, get you
1: to do it? Oh, well, I knew uh, I knew what was going on, and I had a number of people I wanted to talk to, and I shot so many courses um, that uh, no, I didn't get a chance to get roasted by Isaac, but uh, uh, he roasted me plenty on social media, and we just constantly razz each other, so. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he's he's one of my favorite people, and especially when I go to those events. Like he, so I I had I had shot. I was shooting the practice range. I just got done shooting the course, and I shot the course pretty well. And for some reason, on the practice range, I just. I started getting some anxiety with all those people around, which is good to yeah. have happen. Yeah. But I I got done saying to Cody at SICA, I said, man, I'm going to go sit down for a minute. I said, I'm not, I'm not shooting real great. And as I'm walking away, Isaac calls me on the microphone and I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> this is the wrong time for this to happen. <laughs> he calls me up and he's like, come on. He's like, you know, he, he does his big announcement. We got Bo Martonic from the East meets West. He's like, he comes from Pennsylvania. Thinks of the big shot out here in the West, you know, just, doing his thing uh-huh. and then yep. he comes up and he calls me a he, he called me a fake weed dealer at a luke bryan concert that's what he said <laughs> i look like and i was all like he's so good at coming up with those things off the cuff yep. and uh and i missed the target i missed like just and, and which should have been kind of a chip shot. I mean, it was 81 yards, but like, I missed that centerpiece there. And, yeah. uh, yeah, definitely. He definitely embarrassed me there. So
1: <laughs> well, that, that's what Isaac, that's what Isaac does. Just, yeah, he, 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 yeah, he's a good guy. He, he and I have known each other. He actually likes to pretend that, uh, I cut him off on a stock and that was the first time that we met, which was not true. I had no clue that he was there. Um, not until after the fact, but the funny thing is back like 12 years ago when I was a no name in the archery world, I actually met Isaac and he was way, this is just like when Isaac was hip stuff, he just killed two monster bucks. And, uh, I'd actually met him in one of our pretty popular local trails. And I was, it was in November. And I remember thinking, Oh man, that's the guy. I think he was at Badlands at the time. Maybe he'd I can't remember, but I remember having seen him and having seen his, his two big bucks. And I was like, Oh shit, that's, I, I didn't, I don't know if I knew his name, but I, I recognized his face and, yeah. and uh, that was the first time we met, but obviously he doesn't remember that cause he didn't know who the shit I was at that time. But, uh, so I make fun of him, that he doesn't even remember the first time that we met and <laughs> he claims that he claims just razzing me is when I apparently cut him off on a stock, but I had no clue he was even there. But anyway, it's, it's, he's a fun guy. I love Isaac.
0: Yeah, no, I I do too. And, and that's, I feel like, uh, I mean, I feel like that's kind of always going to happen when you're hunting the front as far as like, you know, just hunting the Wasatch as far as there's so many people or you're going to run into just run into people all the time.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, you, you got, yeah. I don't think a lot of people are afraid of really, publicizing you know some deer that get killed here because it's you want to come do it good luck there's 20,000 people who do it and you're not going to affect anything you're going to come you're going to get frustrated you're going to think that oh this is you're gonna you're yeah you're gonna think that oh this person screwed me up well there's like 10 other dudes so yeah it's it's just mortal combat hunting and you kind of have to change your philosophy and pretty difficult bow hunting terrain. Cause it's thick. We're not quite high enough in elevation to use classic spot and stock type, you know, techniques. You have to kind of start thinking outside of the box and do ambush and, um, yeah, light, light wind bumps and, and stuff like that to, to try to get the, the deer in a manageable position and, um, do- dog, and, like kind of like you do uh, elk hunting, dog and herds, um, dog in a deer herd in the rut. Um, uh, just waiting for that, that, that buck to be on the periphery for you to strike, um, kill a lot of deer that way. Um, yeah. Anyway, different yeah. tactics because of the elevation. We're not quite high enough to put, you know, some basins you can get some spot and stocking in. But for the most part, the, the the bucks just descend into big clumps of trees, like huge, you know, forests, if you will, or um, you know, just more or less hard to stalk. And then, uh, and then obviously you're dealing with the people, so it's ultra thick, tons of hunting pressure. It's it's hands down the most hunted place out west. I mean, anybody with a tag in the state can hunt it. I like to joke that any given weekend in the major canyons of the extended archery there's probably in November
0: i bet you there's 10,000 hunters
1: in really a few canyons yeah
0: that is insane i mean that's that's like you're talking like Pennsylvania first day of rifle season type of deal you know like we're known for the orange army but it's just you probably can't see as many people because they're not wearing orange
1: <laughs> yeah 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 unfortunately you know, bow hunting. Um, I do a lot of, I have done a lot of sitting and ambushing, uh, sitting escape routes. So you just got to figure out different ways, different tactics. I'm actually funny that we're kind of talking about this. Cause I'm actually writing an article right now for, let's see, this will be for the December, November, December issue of Western Hunter about using unconventional tactics and seasons to, to continue your pursuit of mule deer. So, you know, like, october type hunts or rut type hunts the type of hunts that kind of put you out of the quintessential august september high country spot and stock that everyone we all we all want to do that but honestly i think that some of those units where where there, there is really good spot and stock high country early season they're becoming really hard to draw so you know a couple of units that i'm thinking of in colorado that i wish i could get those tags i can't in fact some of the tags are way easier to get a muzzleloader or a rifle tag than the archery because, you know, everyone wants to go spot and stock in the high country, bet a buck, go stock him. That's what we all dream about. But there's only a few, there's not a few, but there's a limited number of places that you can actually do that. And those popularity of those have kind of pushed it out of the grasp of the, uh, every year type type draw
0: yeah no that 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 makes total sense i mean i think that's anybody that wants to hunt mule deer i feel like it's their dream to hunt you know that August September time frame yeah. high country spot and stock big velvet you know mule deer I mean yeah. I know that's I know that's what you know mine is and to to be able to do that sometime and and I hadn't uh filled you in on on this I don't I don't remember if I did but the only time I tried to hunt mule deer before was when I went to Colorado in 2021 I cashed in some points and I went in and when I was heading to the hunt I was I was feeling just sick and run down and you know I had just wasn't feeling well and I ended up getting altitude sickness really bad and ended up oh. in the in the hospital from it which I've hunted at that elevation before never had issues and hunted after and and never had problems, but Mm -hmm. they said it was just a combination of being sick and everything that made it, you know, that much Mm -hmm. worse. So I never really got the true, the true experience to get to do it. My cousin had killed a deer on that hunt. Um, but I was, I was packing off the mountain at that point, but it, uh, it's, it's one of those, those hunts that I feel like that a lot of people dream of, but when, because of that, it's, you know, this picturesque thing of hunting that high country spot, it's harder to get tags.
1: Yeah. Harder to get tags. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of units in Colorado that I wish, I mean, the unit that I'm hunting right now, it's easier to get the muzzleloader tag. So that's the hunt that I've been doing. Cause I can still get it second choice mm, or, okay. or, 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 zero points. Right. I bounce between a couple of different units, but Yeah. When it comes to like, I'm, I'm an archery nerd. Um, you know, that's, that's my, that's my bread and butter. But, uh, when it comes to, to hunting Utah deer, I'm pretty much archery only. That's I hunt out of my backyard. I I'm fortunate to live at the base of big cottonwood Canyon, right up, right up near the mountain. So, you know, I'm up that Canyon Three to four days a week scouting and then hunting. Um, fortunately, I've got a job that allows me flexibility in the mornings. A lot of people think that some they only see me constantly shooting my bow or hunting, but I've got the type of job that allows me to kind of interface with people during the day, but then also work late hours at night. And what people don't see is that sure I may do you know I may go to the range three or four times a week and I may scout in the mornings, but I'm up till midnight every night working. So I, I, you know, I pull 40, 45 hour work, work day at my engineering job, do my Western hunter stuff, social stuff, shoot, work out, scout, and, you know, attend to my family, you know, my boys, I've got two boys, my wife, and I, uh, I end up just cutting out my sleep. So, uh, (laughs) I had, there was a funny, I was at Easton the other day and some guy, it wasn't being rude or anything made a comment like, man, you just seem to have all the time in the world.
0: And I was like, well, I don't feel that way. My yeah. sleep definitely
1: doesn't feel that way.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny because from the, yeah, you know, the outside looking in, that's exactly, you know, what people see and, and that's, and, yeah, I don't know how you do it with the sleep thing. Cause I, so when I was for the first four years, oh, it's a necessity, really, if you want to do those things. But like when the first four years I was doing this podcast and then was working my job that I had, I was working in manufacturing full time and I was working 45, 50 hours a week and then coming mm-hmm. back and editing podcasts and, trying to use my vacation to go on these trips and do things. And it's it's just like my, my uh, I track everything on my, my Garmin watch my sleep and stuff. And it was like, I was averaging between four and four and a half hours of sleep a night. And, and I was just, I was getting sick all the time and run down. And now that I've kind of transitioned to, to making it uh, or to doing this stuff, Full time a little bit. It definitely is. I prioritize sleep a little bit more. To you know, my goal is always to try to hit seven hours now, but Mm -hmm. you know, usually it's like six, six and a half, and I I feel a lot better when I when I do that. But you know, honestly, I was still doing the same things. You know, beforehand, it was just like you gotta you gotta figure out how you're gonna make time.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's I'll probably pay for it when I'm older with dementia or something but I kind of just joke sleep when you're dead. But my, (laughs) I do, I actually am not very, I'm not a very skilled person, honestly. Um, that sounds weird for me to say, but, um, the one skill that I do feel like I have is I can grind. And then for whatever reason, I perform actually really well on very little sleep. And I got that from my mom. She's the same way. Okay. So like, I don't feel like I'm naturally gifted at shooting a bow. I joke that I've got a friend, Jaron, that shoots his bow one hundredth of what I do. And I, I feel like if he shot his bow just a little bit more, he's just naturally skilled with it. And I I have to be a masochist and shoot every day to hold a decent group. Um, that's just, I'm just not the most skilled person, but was born with, you know, kind of a grind ethic and, and an ability to perform well on little sleep. So I, I take advantage of both those things, because I, otherwise I'd be a sorry little sorry little ginger, according to Isaac.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that's I think it's important to to note. Like, I mean, as far as like recognizing yourself, because I'm, I'm I'm I I can hear you. I'm not talented at just about anything that I do, but it's like anything you put effort towards, anybody can be you know can become yeah. good at it if you you know put in the effort. And it's like I I just you know, from, from the, the outside looking in, then hearing you talk and like, as how much effort you put into your bow setups and your arrow builds and all the things you're doing, it's like, you're just, you're building these things up to, to make sure that they go right or have the least chance of going wrong essentially, because you're preparing for that.
1: I love how you put that. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's all, it's all, yeah. Lots of effort, nothing, you know, you know, doesn't come naturally. And I love how you said, I'm stacking the deck in my favor on my hunts with all of my preparation. So I'm, I'm huge on preparation, bow preparation, um, making the right phone calls before your hunt, making sure that, you know, well, you'll get a kick out of this, a little bit of a side tangent. I got to a hunt one time in Idaho and there had been a burn. The fire had been at, burned out and out of this one main trailhead, you go like three different directions, right? You wouldn't believe the number of people, hunters, who logged into the trail book saying that they were going to the exact drainage that two weeks ago had just burned the whole thing down. And I was just like, Oh my word. That is like, I couldn't. And then funny. The funny thing was, is like, we checked the log book kind of just joking with ourselves. Like half those people had come out and and like, had put a note in the log book, like didn't know there was a fire or something. And I was just like, could you imagine oh. in the first three days of your hunt? just going like hiking for, you know, five, six miles into this drainage. And then you're like, Oh, it's burnt. And then you're like, Oh snap, I guess we'll leave and go somewhere else. Yeah. So like, yeah. Making the right calls. One time I got bit in a butt. We were driving to Colorado and we had to go through this like kind of rural area and dumb me didn't check. And, and at Google, isn't the best at, you know, really rural areas and road conditions. Well, guess what? There was a road closure. And we missed it by an hour, so we had to sleep. And did that was just <laughs> last year. Really? So, yeah. So th- there's just always stuff that you have to. Pr- that bit me, so we literally slept at the road closure until they opened it up at 6 a.m. So it's just constantly learning. It's just a constant battle of uh, remember recapping what went well and what went wrong.
0: Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with Cyber Scout from Spartan Forge. Cyber Scout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. Cyber Scout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with credible aerial imagery, mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at spartanforge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S. And I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade Short Barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com/cva. If you use the code East Meets West ten, you'll get ten percent off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories.
1: You know, after the season, what went well? What went wrong? figuring it out, making mental notes. And what I'm trying to do in Western hunter is I'm trying to like prepare people for the shit that I've gone through so that they don't have to to do it. And a lot of it's on the preparation end, the bow stuff. You know, I'm a huge believer in like what you said, making your bow the most efficient for your exact hunt. Not, not what, not, I love the guy and he has great advice. Not what necessarily what Aaron Snyder says or not what so-and-so says. Like I preach two completely different arrow philosophies, depending on what, what you're hunting, right? Like if you're hunting open country mule deer that this, that I'll, I'll put the blanket statement out here. This assumes that you have enough energy, right? That you, that you've got a decent draw length, you're pulling 70 pounds, that energy isn't an issue, but my whole thought process is like preparing bow wise. Well, I want to optimize the best chance that I have of killing an animal. So there's like an arrow design and a bow design that that can help me achieve that goal. And on open country hunts, in my opinion, based off of the shit that I've dealt with and mistakes that I've made is ranging errors, right? Like most people, myself included, the errors that you make in open country hunts are ranging errors. Like, uh you, you just get a miss range, even with a rangefinder. Uh, um sometimes you think you you know it, you you guess at the range um and it's wrong, or you use a rangefinder and range beyond it, or you hit some grass in front of it. Like you've been to total archery challenge. How many times on some of those shots did you have to push yeah. the rangefinder and actually get the right range, right? So range forgiveness is the most important thing in my mind on open country mule deer hunts, for example. So what that means is is I want an arrow with a trajectory that's very flat. So it doesn't arc a lot as it's flying. What that means is at 80 yards, I'll just use 80 yards as an example. If you range something at 80 yards, well, let's say it's 82 yards. Well, with a slower arrow, with a a slower, higher profile trajectory, you're If you, if it's, if it's really 82 and you aim for 80, you're going to miss, you're going to be out of the kill zone. You may wound them. Right. So I preach this thing called range for, uh, range forgiveness at 80 yards. So I, with every one of my setups, I want to know how far off on a range I can be at 80 yards and still, uh, hit the kill or be, be in the kill zone, right. For a mature mule deer, I figure it's like 10 inches. So I've got plus or minus five inches. And on my fast arrow setup, the one that's optimized for open country hunting I can be three yards off at 80 and still be in the kill zone. That's monumental, right? That's yeah. If if I would have known this 10, 15 years ago, I think back on the animals where I just shot just underneath it. Well, to go from shooting just underneath to clipping the heart, killing an animal is like two inches. So two, three inches, right? So if I would have known this stuff like 15 years ago, I would have killed some pretty damn good deer. In fact, one one 180 class mule deer I have in, in mind right now then you contrast that with like with uh so guys in the pacific northwest hunting rosies or guys in northern idaho hunting rocky mountain elk but really dense timber um some places in wyoming have really dense timber guys out uh out east i don't mean to like tromp on the the eastern subject so much but um ambush hunting water hunting I take the exact opposite approach. Like unless you're hunting like a cornfield and you may expect like a 60, 70 yard shot across the cornfield in that particular instance, I probably want a light fast arrow so I could be off on the range. But like any other close quarter situations, I like an ultra heavy arrow because what I've learned based off of my experience sitting water and ambush hunting, which I've done a fair amount of. I, I do not want to wait for an ideal broadside shot because the wind can swirl. You want to minimize your time in the red zone. So for me, short range situations, thick cover, calling an elk, sitting water, sitting tree stands, all that stuff. I want I want shot angle forgiveness and, and how you get shot angle forgiveness is momentum. Momentum is probably the single most important factor for penetration, especially on heavy bone impact. So I like a really heavy arrow in short range situations, uh, so that I can, if, if, if I need to take a slightly quartering two shot and I, I catch the edge of the scapula, it's going to penetrate. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so that those sort of things, like I get down to that sort of detail in my preparation because I truly feel that stacking the deck in your favor and, and, more or less over preparing for hunts is the reason why i've been fairly successful
0: no i mean i think that i think that makes a whole lot of sense and it's a very practical approach to it because you know like you look at someone like me that has a shorter draw length you know 27 and a half inch draw you know i shoot an ultra heavy arrow and i start shooting long ranges you're off by a couple of yards you're off you're completely you're, missing you're done you're completely done, you know, and this, or even just like the, we're, uh, uh, and when we were in big sky shooting total archery challenge, we were in the timber, but shooting long distances, like tack is mm-hmm. all about. It seems like, I remember I was, I was shooting next to John Dudley and I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to miss, I'm going to hit that branch. You know, it's over top of it. And he's like, Oh, you're good. And his mind, which I found out later, he knew I was going to hit it with my arrow setup, And I smashed that branch. Cause it was so much arc <laughs> at that distance yeah. with the arrow that I was shooting, you know, being a little bit, and it's not like ultra heavy or anything, but with my short draw length, it, you know, it adds, you know, it adds a little bit to it. So it just, it just makes a whole lot of sense. And like, for me, I am absolutely terrible at judging range without a range finder in open country. I've learned yeah, that. I'm I know I'm just terrible with it. I'm used to hunting whitetails in thick woods. I'm setting up in a tree for 15 to 25 yard shots. Yeah. Most of the time, you know, it's, it's completely different game than when you go out West and, yeah. or if you're hunting ag country for whitetails and stuff like that. So.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, Yeah, I, I, uh, I killed a, I killed like a 150 class four point, um, number of years ago, sitting water. And it was the same. He came in right at last light. Um, I remember it was the first time I'd shot a really, really heavy arrow and he was quarter two and, uh, the type of shot that if I'd shot, you know, uh, uh, an Ulmer edge at the time or a rage, um, I would, the, the shot hit the shoulder because he was quarter two and it, it wouldn't have penetrated. Um, but I was shooting, I believe it was a shuttle T at the time on a heavier arrow. And uh, this is kind of at, this is the first time where I was really like, you know, it just makes sense to shoot a really heavy arrow in water situ, you know, sit in water because he's going to come to the water. That's 20 yards away. It's a very static situation. And I'd had multiple deer and spike elk wind me in this, the way they come in. And I was like, I just got to get that shot off as fast as I can. So basically not whatever shot angle he gives me, but the first decent shot angle, take it and bam, hammered that buck. Um, I waited 20 minutes. He was piled up dead, but by then it was dark. I didn't want to bump him. So I backed out and went in the next morning and just, just freaking pinwheeled him and uh he went like literally went like 40 yards and uh yeah so that that's that's the thing like and if i and if i hadn't have had some sour experiences with you know waiting for an ideal shot situation i wouldn't have had this thought process of okay what can i do to to have better better opportunities on on this situations and then you know i can if I could probably count on, I don't know if I could count on both hands, the number of times I've misranged in my bow hunting career. And anyway, so that, that's the sort of thing, but then it even goes beyond that. Like for you and your situation, I was literally having a conversation today, um, with a, a local guy, um, uh, about, he couldn't believe the speed that I was getting out of. I just posted some stuff on Instagram about uh, a heavier arrow that I'm going to hunt elk with this year. And he couldn't believe the speed I was getting out of it. And I told him my specs. He's like, how is that possible? I have, I have a longer draw length than you and we're shooting essentially the same bow. Well, not everything is created equal because there are different, different bows and cams and and whatnot, draw length and, um, you know, uh, brace heights that that can can factor into all that stuff and i'm i'm with you i have a 28 inch draw so i'm a little bit longer but yeah i also pull 80 pounds um but there's bows that are optimized for for different ranges or different draw lengths like this hoyt rx7 that i shoot the 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 smaller axle to axle one the 30 inch in a tw- in the 28 inch cam is the top the 28 inch cam is the, or 28 inch draw length is the, is the fastest or the top spot on that module. So it's incredibly efficient. I was, I'm shooting a, uh, so for, for this elk hunt, then a couple of elk hunts I'm doing this year, I'm um, kind of open country. So I, I don't want to go like ultra heavy. It's pretty open, but I, I want to kill, I want to use a fixed blade not that I don't have confidence in like a sever. I just, uh, I always want to have a, a, a fixed blade for elk hunting. Not that I wouldn't shoot a mechanical. I, I carry both in my quiver, but I don't like shooting fixed blades over like 285 feet per second. So, um, uh, I've got this arrow that I've, um, it's, it's going 281 feet per second and it's like 545 grains or something like that. And it's going 281. And this particular guy, he was, he's shooting, uh, um, an RX seven ultra at five Oh five. And it was, it was going in like the two seventies and he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. And I was just like, well, that's the difference between the RX, the RX seven and the RX seven ultra me being in a very efficient spot on my cam and you being in not so efficient spot in your cam. So you can't just go to the bow shop and be like, Oh, James Yates likes this bow. That's the one I want to get. Now you got to You got to kind of do some research on your own. Like, Oh, my draw links a little different. Like Hoyt's got different bows that are optimized for different draw links. Ah, that that, that makes sense. Does that make sense? So that's, so Hoyt's pretty clever in what they do. Like, I know you shoot a prime, right? Yep. So, so prime's gone back and forth. I used to shoot a lot of primes and, Prime, Prime for the most part, has been draw length specific cams, right? So you have to get a cam specific for your draw length. Uh, well, there for a couple of years, they went to a rotating mod that covered all the draw lengths. Well, then, you're going to lose efficiency on those lower draw lengths, a lot of efficiency. And I think they had customers that were complaining about that. So Prime went back to a draw length specific cam. Yep. Well, well... Hoyt, Hoyt's kind of in a position where they want to offer some, some flexibility, some resale. It kind of sucks with, I, I actually prefer from prime the draw length specific camps. I didn't like their move to the, um, to the rotating mod because for us shorter guys, we were just getting chopped in the our heads chopped off with uh, the efficiency loss. Um, And the draw length specific cam was helping with that. But then resale sucks. If your draw length was off a little bit, you you don't, you have to get a new, you have to get a new cam to fix that. Well, Hoyt's got these, has got basically every bow has two mods, a lower, a smaller mod and a bigger mod. But all of their bows, literally all of their bows in their lineup, the four hunting bows, if you will, the VTM Uh, 31 vtm 34 the r the rx7 and the rx7 ultra they're all optimized for different draw lengths so you can find a bow in the Hoyt lineup that is within basically one basically one adjustment of being optimized for your draw length but you still get the flexibility of having a range a, a, a range of draw lengths does that make sense
0: yeah, no, I'm, I'm so, following you. So
1: there's some resale, uh, if you were screwed up, if you're at the top of the cam and you need a slightly longer draw length, well, that's not going to help you, but th- so you get the best of both worlds, right? You get a bow that's optimized for your draw length. Plus you have some variability on the draw length. So it's kind of unique in the industry anyway. So that, that's the sort of thing that I'm talking. You can't just like go buy an RX seven. Cause James Yates shoots that at 318 feet per second or whatever it's very specific to my draw length, you know, that sort of deal. So this is all preparation. It's all, you know, all really important to success.
0: Yeah. And I think that's why it's also so important. Like when you go into an archery shop to shoot and then shoot all the bows and see what feels comfortable and what makes sense for, for you, you know, like for a lot of years, I had shot a Matthew's bow and honestly, you know, I'd, I I liked those bows and they were great bows, but I always felt like it was top heavy to me, you know, that was, you know, it always felt top heavy. So then that's when I grabbed a prime and I was like, man, that center grip for me, just like, I felt steadier on target and I was able to, you know, keep the balance well. So it's like, there's all these different things that come into it, but you know, there's other people that are like, Oh, maybe that's not for me. And that's, that's okay. That's why there's, different manufacturers and different models and everything. And honestly, I had never looked at like what you were talking about with where it's the most efficient, depending on uh, the cam and everything for that.
1: Yeah. And I've got, I've got an article that kind of describes that in Western Hunter specifically with the Hoyt and talks about that a little bit more detail. but it's just kind of an overall general conversation. So a lot of my articles that I write in Western Hunter are kind of to the tune of this discussion. Like how to be ultra prepared, mostly from an archery perspective, but one or two articles a year, I kind of go a little bit broader in, in general preparation terms as well. Um, so I'm I'm a big nut on, on preparation for success and yeah, no, uh, that,
0: that, that makes a lot of sense. The, uh,
1: the, just to highlight that prime center grip thing that, that is really nice. I, I, I do, I do miss that a little bit. The the extra mass of the bow below the grip, and it just really helps. I mean, I I use the analogy of using, you know, holding on a sledgehammer with the weight down versus the weight up. Gravity wants to take that one way or the other, but when it's down, gravity wants to take it down. Obviously, that's an extreme example, but that's the whole reason why you want to mount your stabilizers low and get your stabilizer weight as low as you can. And that's the whole reason why prime does their center grip. So, you know, there's physics behind all of this stuff. And fortunately being an engineer, I, you know, I'm educated in that sort of stuff. So I, I understand that maybe a little bit more than the average person. I just try to apply it to my articles and my mindset.
0: Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And like, again, and I think what you're talking about, you know, from an archery perspective and also from a hunt planning perspective is just so so relevant, especially to us from the East that are going out West. Say you have, you know, 10 days vacation, seven days vacation, 14 days, whatever it is, like you can't, you can't be screwing around and, and messing up and, you know, the road closure thing made me laugh because a couple of years ago when I was in Colorado, we got out there three days early before season and I was going to the spot and I saw where there was a fire, but there was, you know, there was, I was getting mixed when I called the the office there about mm-hmm. whether it was going to be closed at that time or not. So we kind of just had to try it. And I really wanted to mm-hmm. glass from this spot and, and get there and, Yep. Well, the road was closed, you know, but if I wouldn't have been there even, you know, before season or anything that would have been, you know, I was almost a half a day drive just to get to this spot in the Canyon. You know, luckily I had, you know, multiple accesses kind of listed out, but that was the easiest one to be able Mm -hmm. to get to. And it's just, it can screw with you pretty, pretty good.
1: Yeah. When you're, when you're working on a limited time and all of a sudden you've lost a half a day, a day, two days, you're just like, well, shit, i I, I kind of look at hunts at the number of days times two. That's really how many opportunities you have, right? One in the evening, one in the morning, and it's and it's just all of a sudden you start, and then all of a sudden those number of the number of opportunities, if you will, are are down onto two hands, and then all of a sudden before you know it they're down onto one hand, and you're like, oh, fuck. yeah, yeah, and, and it's just every day counts, especially. I am the most unlucky person when it comes to tags in the world. Like, I have literally in 10 years never drawn a tag that I wasn't guaranteed. So, like, I drew a three point unit in Colorado for a rifle deer hunt, and I spent seven points on it.
0: Well, I'm shooting a new bow this year, and I am pumped. After playing around with the buddies Hoyt RX 8. The smile on my face made the decision for me the first thing i noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like i prefer i outfitted my own rx8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow my favorite accessory so far is a simple one it's the go sticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX exact cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stalk just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at the MobileHuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there.
1: I didn't think it was. It was actually one of those where dumb Colorado, like dumb Utah, you actually put in for the tags before they give you the tag allocation. And this particular unit, uh, they cut the tags back from winter kill and then I put in with seven points in a six-point unit is what I thought. I was like, yeah, that's fine. My buddy had eight, so he he took it and he took it up the butt a little worse than me. But um, he uh, we we put in, and then what we find out? Guess what? They doubled the number of tags, so it went from a six-point draw to a three-point draw. Anyway, we ended up killing a 185-inch typical for my buddy, and then I killed like a 178 typical young deer, uh, but kind of one of those classic young deer with Bomber genetics. He has like a four inch, uh, four inch, four or five inch kicker, good frame, uh, 26, 27 inches wide and good eye guards. But the type of deer that would have been 200 inches the next year,
0: probably. But yeah, I
1: got, I got greedy towards the end of the hunt and I just wanted to kill him. So. (laughs)
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I think you're you're spot on with it. I like how you looked at it from the number of opportunities, like when you're looking at, you know, morning, night, morning, night, as far as that's when you're most likely to have, you know, the opportunities there. And it's just like in my... I have not you know been probably doing it- cl- even close to as long as you have, but like you know I started hunting out west in two thousand and sixteen and going through that, and the amount of mistakes and stuff that I've found like probably the most prepared I was when i was it was the last time that I would elk hunted before before last year's two thousand nineteen, and at that point I'd went three years without killing killing an elk, and it was just like mm-hmm. Man, I was just struggling. I just basically put everything down on paper that where my problems were. And Mm -hmm. when I I got this Idaho tag, it was an over-the-counter tag, which it still is, but it was easier to get at that time. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay... I I need to just go through and have backup plan after backup plan and have different hunt areas at different elevations and all these different things. And and I put so much time into e-scouting and planning and looking all this stuff. And I ended up killing uh, my first bull on day one of the hunt. And, and it was like, but it was one of those things where, you know, you look at it, it's like, okay, I was planning on being there for 14 days and I, and I stayed and helped buddies out, but it Mm. was like, yeah, it wasn't it looked like it was the first day but that was actually day 40 if you look at it from yeah. all the other you know yeah. years of experiences and trying yeah. to to get to that point but what I what I learned from that and that's what I took going forward was just like the more I put into that planning up front the better chances I'm going to have when I get there or if you run into a roadblock of some sorts you know more hunting pressure than you expected or no elk or deer whatever it is you're not scrambling to to find the next spot you have it already on paper you know you you're ready yeah. for it
1: yeah I, I completely agree with that and you didn't quite say this but you probably agree is how I coined this phrase in my in this last article that I wrote that I think's coming out in um Let's see what day. That will be uh just before September. So the end of August. How a hunt starts is how it's going to persist. If you're if you come into a hunt and it and you're really well prepared, your hunts just seem to go smooth. If you come into a hunt, hunts are really demanding on us mentally and physically, right? So if you come to into a hunt and you're shot, you just I don't know, maybe you had an argument with your boss or your wife, or maybe you're mentally burned out because of issues like that or or maybe maybe you maybe you're hunting a a a dry a dry drainage and you're trying to get a few days worth of water up um the the day before the opener just so you don't have to cycle to get water and and you get up and day one you're exhausted because you just hike hiked an eighty pound pack with you know two extra gallons of water up three thousand feet of vert and I have just found that how a hunt starts is how it's going to persist. So if you start tired, you're going to be tired throughout the rest of the hunt. If you, if, if you're, if you're mentally effed up because you had a fight with your wife or your boss before you left, you're going to be mentally effed up for the rest of the hunt. Um, if, if, if you're scrambling with your, with your options, you're going to be scrambling for the rest of the hunt. So again, not to drill the preparation, but man it's just, it's just so important. Um, just so important to start that hunt off on the right foot. Not saying that you, you can't recover from a bad start. It's just hard.
0: Yeah. No. And again, I just, I just think of so many just reminders of that, you know, last year too, I was going, I got back from, I was hunting in Alberta and I was like, wanted to get to West Virginia to to hunt the rut. And I was like, my water line broke at my house and I was trying to clean that up and go. I ended up having to drive all the way through the night and I didn't sleep. And what do you know? My immune system runs myself down and I'm sick. And the hunt started off being sick. And it was just like, I was putting in 40% of the effort that I normally would have been able to do. And, you know, I came home with the tag in my pocket and it was just like, and I felt super confident before that. It's like, I would have just gave myself a day of rest, you know, between there and, and just, and went down and even if I had a one last day to hunt, I would have been more efficient for that time yeah. versus trying to push it.
1: Yeah. Limp along. Yeah. I remember I, just recognizing your body. I remember on a hunt I was doing with some buddies. Um, I had just burned my butt if at work. And, and I remember getting the, I remember getting, you know, midday to our camp and we, we this was an elk hunt. we could already hunt. It wasn't an opener deal. Um, and I remember, two of two of the guys went off one way, but I literally pulled a I'd been up for I don't know a, a stupid amount of time, 36 hours or something. And I told my partner, I was like, hey, I'm first up. Uh this isn't gonna affect you because I'm first up. I'm gonna take a two-hour nap. And I literally started out the hunt taking a two-hour nap, but I just needed it. I remember like how overwhelming it felt to go out and immediately start hunting that day. And, and I, uh, I ended up taking a two hour nap and, and, and that really helped. Obviously that's really small, but yeah, but it speaks, it speaks volumes to listen to your body and, and listen, and that's become more important. The older, I I'm almost 40. So I'm, I'm starting to get in that geezer age. So I'm going to start thinking about those things. Like I have, I've been having hip problems who has hip problems, right? No, like,
0: (laughs) yeah, Uh, yeah. It's are spot on. I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast before with on a whitetail side of things. It's like, okay, during the rut, you know, you're spending a lot of time in a tree sitting dark to dark and just, you know, the ambush style hunting. Well, you know, you, tr- you try to take advantage of that time you have off, but it's like you do that day after day. And even though you're just sitting there, it's exhausting mentally. And, you know, so like for me, if I get, say I do three or four days and I'm just like absolutely wore out, I might sleep in a little bit. And then yeah. just, and for me, I found that like the most where I, where I've, killed the most deer is during the middle of the day during the rut. So it's like, okay, I'll skip that first couple hours in the morning, get some rest, reset, get a good breakfast in, and then go in and do it. And it's just like, and maybe some people don't need that. But for me, I've learned that for me to, to be, you know, and be efficient and active while I'm in the woods and focused on the task at hand, that that's what I need to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Listening to your body. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yes, no, yes, most agreed. most definitely. What what else do you think on the the preparation side that you see either yourself or others kind of make mistakes on on specifically on like western hunts?
1: Uh making sure your even your mechanical broadheads fly with your field tips. A lot of people think that mechanicals just inherently fly and for the most part they do, especially severs. I, I really like the sever, so that's a shameless plug for sever. Um uh for the most part they fly, but always just they've got that practice mode. Make sure that um, if, if everyone tell, if somebody were to tell me that they can shoot a sever with their fill tip out to 120 yards, I call bullshit because there's more, there's some drag to the sever and, uh, they're going to start dropping probably at 80, 90, a hundred yards a little bit. Um, maybe it doesn't get meaningful to 90, a hundred, but anyway, you still want to, and it's not just drag. You, you, you want to make sure that your tune's decent. Um, a couple of, like, like I said, make some phone calls, uh, check on X maps, um, make sure that there's no fires in the immediate area or that you're getting, or you're not going to be impacted by smoke potentially. Um, the road closures is another big one. Um, this is all stuff that per- personally bit me, um, uh, making sure that everything's screwed down on your bow. I know that that's, um, uh, sounds trivial, but, uh, it, it it uh it cost me a 330 type bull on the Wasatch Front General Archery, so that's an OTC tag, so that's a giant bull for the unit. My my rested um I ride um I hunt some off a bike and uh the bouncing um you know side by side could do the same, can kind of jaw jar some things loose. So just constantly making sure that all the screws are tight on your bow. Um the rest, the sight, that sort of thing. Um, I like to keep my string clean. Um, If you're out in dusty areas out West, um, I kind of got this unique method for cleaning my bow string. Um, I use a little bit of wax and I get it on the string. um, And then I take a piece of serving and I wrap it around uh, the bow string material. And I run that serving up, and so I'm peeling that wax off. But with that wax comes all the dirt. Does that make sense? Oh
0: yeah, okay.
1: So that's peeling the dirt out. Um, so once you've done that a time or two, and you get the bulk of that wax off, then I'll take a very light layer of wax um, and and just make sure that um, that it it it's it's smooth. You definitely. So over waxing can, can perpetuate a dirty problem, right? If it's tacky to the touch, then, then you're going to be attracting dirt. So the, the, the thing with wax is to use it sparingly and what spare, what does sparingly mean? It shouldn't be tacky to the touch. You shouldn't feel any sort of that waxy sticky stuff uh, on the string. It almost it feels more dry than it feels waxy. Uh, it, it's hard to explain, but okay. Um, I've I've even heard of guys that will use other stuff besides wax because they're afraid that it'll attract dirt. Um, I personally have had no problem with just using. Once you peel off, I use a decent amount of wax to get that dirt off of it. Right. Once you peel that off with the, with the serving material, then um, then at that point you just it's very light layer of wax. So they're definitely not heavy waxing. So that's important to keep your string in good shape. Um, especially if you're trying to get a couple years use out of your string, which honestly you should be able to with a good string builder and maintaining your strings. I shoot more than any person I physically know at and at 80 pounds and I can get two years out of my string, my string builder strings. I, really? there are a couple of times where I, I, he's a local guy. His name's Ken dark Archer. He does fantastic work. Uh, he's in Lehigh, Utah. He does ship out by the way, but, um, he, he, um, I will, the beginning of this year, um, I went down and I had him reserve one section. Um, and we actually decided that I probably didn't even need to do that because there was a tiny bit of serving separation on the outside of the arc. But on the inside, where it actually on the inside of the string, where it's actually touching the cam, there was no separation there. It was just on the outside of the bundle. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So it's not it's not really causing any impact at all. At no,
1: way. no, and it was just so minor. But regardless, I just had him do it, and then I also generally replace my center serve every year if I'm trying to get a second year on my strings. Um, but if you maintain your strings. Um, Hunting out West is really dirty if you, if you, if you're cognizant of that, I'm not saying that you need to do that like multiple times during your hunt. But if you hunt, you know, four months, like I do, it's very important to
0: do it throughout. Um, Yeah. uh, I was just going to make a point on the bow thing. So one thing I learned was, uh, It seemed like Hamsky has fixed the problem a little bit, but on their rest, they used bolts before that would just rust like crazy. And not yeah. that it was like extremely a functional problem while you're there, but it just drove me nuts where, you know, when I'd spend, you know, two, three weeks yeah. out there, it was like, by the time I was done, my bow just had rust all over the bolts yeah. and they were just completely, you know, covered in it. And, um, you know, I'd reached out to them about it and then they're like, Oh yeah, we knew it was a problem. And they sent me replacement bolts and you know, the one I have, you know, since then that I've had has been fine, but it was just, uh, you know, there's, do you, do you do anything as far as like with your bolts and stuff to prevent rust?
1: No, not really. Um, okay. I've not, um, no, I, I, I haven't. Um, it's annoying. I agree with you. Um, it hasn't been an, a huge problem. Um, the most precipitation that I seem to hunt with is in snow in our lake extended archery hunt for whatever reason, the the rains that kind of come in your typical bow hunting months of August and September, they're either like, they just seem to either be downpours or not. Right. And you're not going to hunt during a downpour. So I'm, I'm either tucked up underneath a pine tree or, um, that's not to say I've never hunted in a sprinkle. I I do every year, but yeah, I, no, I, 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 I haven't, um, a uh, light layer of wax, a um, little bit of oil, a little bit of WD, anything like that would help prevent that. Uh, obviously, if you're going to use something like that, uh, you'd want to put the WD on early enough to kind of the smell, the the stuff that's volatile, that's producing a smell, is vaporized off. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Good question. I, but personally, no, I haven't, that's not been something too, too high on my radar
0: No. Okay. No, that, that's, that's a fair, fair answer there. Thanks so much
1: for listening to this episode of East meets West hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. for more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East meets West outdoors and Instagram at East meets West hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe and we'll catch you next time.